Okay, we're back. We're back with uh, another solo episode. Welcome, everybody. Um, first, want to go ahead and get it out there that this was not uh, intended to be a solo episode. We actually um, had an issue that happens to every podcaster, it seems, where you record uh, with somebody, and then somewhere along the way, the recording itself gets kind of screwed up. Um, this time, my guest, who will be a guest on a future show, uh, we're just going to redo it again. Um, my guest was my, my cousin Robert, actually, uh, and we talked a bit about Every Time We Die, my favorite band, one of his favorite bands, um, you know, going over this project I'm doing where I'm, I'm ranking all of their albums, uh, including their first EP. Um, he had some things to say. We had a nice little discussion about the band. Um, had some disagreements, uh, gentlemanly disagreements, about where I was placing certain albums, where he would have placed them, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, the, the intention originally was for me to do the first five, the bottom five, uh, and then talk to Robert about it, and then go into some of the stuff that he wanted to talk about with his tastes and his history as a fan. Uh, and then this episode was intended to be episode nine, where I go over the top five uh, of my my every time I die rankings. And we were going to be recording um, my friend Manny and I. We will be recording in the future. But the intention was to have another every time I die fan on uh, to talk about the top five that I had. Um, still going to be able to do that. Uh, just going to be down the line a little bit. Um, Another bit of housekeeping, I will be going on vacation uh, this coming week, um, so this podcast will be out on Monday, uh, Wednesday, I will be leaving and won't be back until early the following week, um, so that means no show uh, next week, no show um, next Monday, be picking it back up the following week, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get some good discussions and I'll be able to spend some time thinking about uh, a project or two that I'm wanting to get into with this show. Um, because originally, uh, when I had the idea to do this, I wanted to talk about albums that I thought were great, albums I thought were important uh, to the genre, to music itself, sometimes crossing over into other genres. Um, and, and also, you know, music's uh, very important to me, so the, the albums that I find personally significant in my own life. Uh, so that was a big part of why I started it, and it's what I've been doing with this show, and I will continue to do it. But I also had the idea at the beginning to chart some of the development of the genre, and I don't want to, I don't want to just retread what everybody else has done. Uh, there have been plenty of attempts to go through like an anthropological or historical view of metal uh, and create a body of of historical research and anthropological research, like I said, um, to show where it came from and where it's going and all that sort of thing. I don't entirely want to retread those waters. Um, of course, we will at some point when we do this together, but that's just, you know, that's the nature of it. Um, but the first thing that I wanted to dive into um, was proto-metal, going into the stuff that led to metal, stuff that influenced metal, maybe precursors that even if it wasn't a direct influence, it was something that sort of touched on things uh, that would be touched on in greater detail by metal musicians later. Had a wonderful time um, doing that show with Greg on a previous show, um, and we got into some really interesting discussions. I highly recommend uh, going back to that episode. Uh, I believe that was episode six. Yes, episode six. Um, and in the future, I want to do things like that uh, with other genres, um, other subgenres, other eras, um, getting into, you know, the development of where it came from, where it went to, maybe pro uh, prognosticating on the future. Um, we shall see. I already have something in the works with a future guest um, that I will reveal down the line, maybe once we get closer and have a, a better picture of what we're going to be looking at. Um, but one thing that I kind of wanted to preview, because like I said, this, this was not intended to be this week's episode, so I don't really have a ton prepared for it. Uh, my apologies, I thought I would have more time to pull together some ideas for this solo episode. 
um, some essential albums or personal albums to pair with the Every Time I Die rankings. Uh, but I didn't get a chance to do that uh, this week. So what we're going to do uh, is go over some plans that I have uh, for future discussion, for future eras that I want to talk about. And one that's been on my mind really since the beginning uh, of this, uh, since the, the um, Rolling Stone Top 100 medal list was occupying all my time and what actually led to this podcast because of a, a previous guest, I believe in episode four, uh, John and I had the discussion that maybe I should start doing a, an audio version instead of just tweeting all the time about it. And so uh, while listening to all of the albums on that list, um, which was fairly diverse, um, fairly um, surprising in, in moments, pulling things that I wasn't expecting, one thing that I wasn't expecting personally was to be really interested in albums that came out in the 90s and early aughts, really from like the mid-90s on, because um, that's not an era that a lot of people associate with good heavy music. Uh, a lot of the times that's actually an era that's sort of seen as a bit shameful, uh, perhaps, because that was the era of new metal in a lot of people's minds. And new metal was certainly a part of it. New metal was certainly the most visible, probably commercially viable uh, genre at the time. You you also had some classic bands like Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Metallica, Slayer, uh, bands like that that were experimenting with things that people didn't like. Um, kind of a lot of the older bands going off the rails. Um, but I actually think that them doing that contributed to a broader narrative of that era of the, again, the mid nineties through to the like mid aughts that like 10 year period, um, where I think you had some of the most fertile ground for experimentation, uh, in the genre that maybe you had not seen since, you know, the seventies really. And I think that this, this sort of ebb and flow, this wave, um, that you saw in metal over the years through the decades is something that you see in all genres of music, something that Greg and I discussed on our episode together uh, was actually hip-hop. He, he had a brief aside because he's a, a big hip-hop fan, um, and he mentioned that in the, in the mid-80s you had a very similar thing um, as you did with heavy metal, where you had a lot of bands uh, on the metal side of it who had heard the new wave of British heavy metal, who had listened to classic rock growing up, um, and they found all this theatricality, they found all this like virtuosic um, instrumentation, and they thought that was uh, really important, but then they wanted to sort of strip away the parts that they didn't think were important. That's how influences work. You find the things that you like, and maybe you pull away the things that aren't as interesting to you, or that don't fit you. Um, and hip-hop had that, you know, it went from the sort of ostentatious uh, late 70s, early 80s, um, very glamorous kind of look uh, into stripping things down and, and having people like, you know, Rakim and, and groups like um, uh, Run DMC who were, who were looking for a strip, more stripped-down approach. Uh, now, they were still wearing, you know, the, the chains and such, but they certainly didn't look like they were going to the YMCA. So... Quite a different look, quite a different feel. Same thing in metal. Uh, and I think in the 1980s, what you saw was uh, a lot of bands trying to strip things down to its core and hone that to a sharp point. Uh, you saw a lot of bands who were really interested, not necessarily with trying things that were new, but were trying to elevate the things that they thought were really important, whether to them as musicians or to the genre as a whole, um, and you saw a lot of bands that maybe were releasing albums that didn't sound all that dissimilar from each other in that time, um, but it was more about honing their craft and fine-tuning what they had already done and what they were already good at, rather than trying things that were new. And then, of course, you get into the 90s, and like I said, you have these classic bands like Metallica, um, like Slayer, you know, had a, had a divergence in that era, uh, where they just wanted to try something new. They wanted to experiment, uh, for good or ill. 
they maybe felt they had the financial freedom to, uh, maybe they felt just burned out and they just decided, you know what, we, we can't keep making the same album. We can't go any farther than we've already gone. So instead of taking a step forward, um, an, an upper movement to take our, our sound even higher, what we're going to do is step to the side and try something in a totally different direction. And a lot of people hated it. <laughs> uh, a lot of people hated uh, things that came out in that era because that's how it works when you try something new. Um, it, it doesn't work sometimes. Uh, sometimes it just doesn't land uh, really with anybody other than maybe the artists themselves. Sometimes not even the artists themselves look back fondly on those things. Um, but sometimes it landed really well. Uh, and, and I think that a big part of it was in the 90s, again, you had new metal come along, um, which was this totally new, unique thing that resonated with a lot of fans. Uh, a lot of the old school metal fans just absolutely hated it, despised it, kind of went against everything that they wanted to do. Uh, that's why you still had bands like Pantera, who were coming up at the time, who were not interested in reinventing the wheel. Um, they were just interested in um, making their own pure, straight, forward, heavy metal. But they were kind of an outlier. Uh, they were kind of an outlier, which is why I think they're remembered pretty fondly by people, because they had a sound that translates well throughout the times. It doesn't sound like any era, necessarily. Um, but I think, generally speaking, the 90s was the era of experimentation. Uh, it was an era where you got a lot of bands... Um, sort of like uh, Voivod, Acid Bath, Faith No More, Neurosis, um, bands who were willing to try something a little different, try something that was challenging. Um, and you also saw the development of uh, some death metal bands who wanted to move in different directions and put a new spin on death metal. Um, and part of this was because that earlier kind of, of metal music had really run its course commercially. Uh, I've talked about it on this show before, but a lot of the times when when there is not mainstream scrutiny, you start getting some really fascinating results because people feel a little more free uh, to do exactly what they want to do. They don't care about making something uh, that might appeal to a broad audience because they don't assume that there will be an audience at all. Um, and that's, that's really fascinating stuff to me, uh, thinking about this era and thinking about how metal broadly was in a boom era of commercial viability in the late 90s, the early 2000s, purely because of new metal being uh, this this new thing, this frankly vibrant thing. You don't have to like it, but it was a vibrant, dynamic uh, movement. And you did see some variety. It's not like everybody sounded exactly the same uh, in new metal. So, I, of course, I'm, as I go on and, and talk more about this era, and I, I'm going to do some more research uh, over the next few weeks so that I can talk a little more authoritatively about it. Um, but I think that you did see uh, a real bit of dynamism at the time. You saw some real dynamism at the time. And you saw bands that I care deeply about, namely Opeth in the early 2000s, Mastodon, two fixtures of the show that I keep coming back to, uh, really, really play around with their sound at this point in time. You also saw the rise of the Swedish death metal bands uh, around the mid-90s, um, bands that were controversial at the time amongst death metal fans. A lot of death metal fans to this day um, find melodic death metal to be very controversial, um, something that, that maybe doesn't really land with a whole lot of fans. Uh, but the fans who do resonate with it, and I count myself among those, um, Stay tuned for my episode with Robert. We actually had a really good discussion about melodic death metal. Um, that was a, a movement that was much needed. It was a movement that was much needed for, for fans like myself because, again, you can hone everything, you can fine-tune everything uh, to the sharpest point, but there comes a point where you can only be so fast and you can only be so heavy uh, and you can only um, write a better version of the same song <laughs> over and over until you hit something of a peak. Uh, and then instead of falling into a valley, you're going to just have to find another uh, course to chart and another hill to climb. And so that was the era where I think people were doing that. 
I think that what I'm going to do when I go deeper into this, this era, I'm going to try to find some, some albums and some tracks that maybe best exemplify um, that experimentation. I'll probably talk a bit about key bands. It's going to, you know, it's going to be a bit of a, a hassle to get through a lot of this because I might have to break it into parts. Um, but I, I really do want to get these key bands and see where they split uh, from bands that came before them. And so let's hope that I don't drag myself into something that I can't get out of. <laughs> let's hope that I don't get into something that uh, it would be impossible to cover. Uh, so I'll need to lay some ground rules for myself. Uh, I'll need to make sure that I, I get just the essentials because I don't I don't need to to get too bogged down in things, and I don't need to bog you, the listener, down with everything. But I will try to take as deep of a dive as I possibly can while maintaining something of a cohesive narrative. Uh, if you've listened to any of my previous episodes, you will know that I am not a straightforward thinker. I am an abstract thinker that allows their brain to go in a million different directions. Um, so let's hope that we can keep that to a minimum <laughs> uh, going forward with this project that I'm really excited about. So um, I think from there, I'm actually going to, uh, again, not to tip my hand too much, but I guess that it would make some sense to, to go ahead and get into this now. Um, I think from there, I'm actually gonna start honing in on uh, regions. Um, regions as, as interesting, uh, fertile grounds for experimentation uh, and expression. And as a person who lives in the American South, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in looking into sort of the explosion of creativity that happened in the American South, actually around this era, this era in the 90s and the early 2000s. And not all bands sound the same, but there are some key components that a lot of them share that I'm really interested in exploring. Um, so stay tuned for both of those things. And if you, of course, if you have any ideas or any bands that you think I might want to check out or anything that you hate in that era, anything you love in that era that you'd like to learn more about, uh, please let me know, as always, uh, at LakeDragging on Twitter. Um, you can also reach me by through email. It's just LakeDragging at gmail.com. Uh, and I would be happy to, to have those discussions beforehand because I think that honing things through dialogue is a great way to um, put your thoughts together in, in a way that's more coherent and cohesive after you've bounced ideas off of one another. So... I'm really looking forward to it. I really, really am. Um, and I can't wait to get into some of these albums that still blow my mind to this day. I mentioned uh, Neurosis. I mentioned uh, Voivod, who, who is a band that I really wasn't a big fan of when I first listened to them. But I'm, I'm so stoked to, to give them another try and, and see what I can glean from it. Bands like Acid Bath, which I absolutely love. Um, and then, of course, the Southern bands that I was talking about. And I'll, I'll save some of those, put those a little closer to the chest so that when we get there, uh, we can go on the journey together. Uh, so stay tuned. Um, and I guess from here, we can move on to the next half of my Every Time I Die rankings. So to kick us off with this next round of rankings for Every Time I Die, um, I want to begin sort of rehashing why I care so much about this band, um, why I relate to this band, because really that's what it is. You know, um, music is, of course, subjective. There is no way that you can sort of objectively analyze uh, a band, I don't think, uh, at least not in a, in a consistent way or in a fair way. Uh, I sort of understand the, the Roger Ebert style of criticism of, you know, saying, what were you trying to do? Did you succeed in doing that? If you did, it's good, no matter what. Um, and I think that what Every Time I Die does for me uh, is match some of the things that I feel emotionally on a regular basis, some of the things that I think about the world, some of the things I think about myself, um, because I prioritize artists who are interested in self-expression, who are interested in maybe not um, speaking so much uh, about general things, like... Um, speaking to universal things or a universal audience, but are instead interested in laying bare something about themselves uh, for the audience to see, whether they can relate to it or not. You know, I'm, I'm reading a really interesting book by Maggie Nelson right now um, about cruelty in art, right? Uh, and one thing that she pulled here was how 
sometimes the artist's intentions can be cruel. Sometimes what they do unintentionally can be cruel. And one way that they can be cruel is by condescending to the audience, by assuming something of the audience, assuming that there is some sort of universal impulse or universal uh, tendency amongst all people. So when they create an extreme form of art, it's condescending and it's unfair. And in some ways, it's rather cruel uh, to assume that whatever is in that extreme piece of art uh, is within all of us, right? Um, so, you know, when a band like Slayer or Cannibal Corpse, as, as sort of extreme examples, writes these uh, incredibly violent, dark songs, sometimes uh, songs that really put me off um, because I think that they verge into the exploitative um, in a way that's too real, it would be cruel of them to suppose that that impulse, that tendency, that attraction is something that we all share. Now, what I do think uh, is most interesting, and, and I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but in the book, uh, she talks about an artist who says that, you know, he's, he doesn't make art um, to tell people what their problems are. He makes art to tell people what his problems are. Uh, and I found that really fascinating and it really resonated with me because that is that nails on the head uh, exactly what I look for in an artist. Um, and I think that Every Time I Die and Keith Buckley as a lyricist are really perfect examples of what I'm looking for in that way. Uh, sometimes it can be maybe a bit cringeworthy uh, <laughs> because sincerity is inherently cringeworthy. Um, especially in, you know, this sort of post-90s uh, irony-laced culture that we're in. Um, everybody has a sense of abstraction or an ironic detachment from everything now, and I will admit I'm one of those people. Um, I am prone to cynicism and prone to abstraction, um, prone to, to ironize everything, uh, to satirize things. Um, so whenever I hear a band like Every Time I Die or a vocalist like Keith Buckley, a lyricist like Keith Buckley, uh, across all of his projects, it is sort of refreshing to hear someone who is not afraid to say exactly what they're feeling um, at any given moment, regardless of how the audience can relate to it, regardless of the audience is even interested in it, uh, because this is not a band that is commercially viable, really. I think they attempted to be commercially viable uh, on Gutter Phenomenon, uh, which was, if you remember from the last episode, uh, came in at the very bottom of my rankings almost entirely because of that, because it did feel like such a blatant cash grab. But these next five albums, these, these albums that I am going to be covering on this episode uh, as my one through five, I think that these are the albums where you see most clearly how personal they can get. Um, where you see a more or less unfiltered version uh, of themselves. Um, now, before I continue, I do want to talk about interpretation, and I want to talk about hermeneutics and filters. And for anybody who is uninitiated in, in you know, the sort of non-biblical study of hermeneutics, because hermeneutics was originally a term used to study scripture, um, but what that really means is there are gaps between the impulse, the thought, the emotion, uh, the, the expression that you're trying to let out of you, these sort of internal processes you have, uh, gaps between that and someone that you are trying to relate that to uh, and how they understand that. And it begins, again, internally. You have a thought, you have a feeling, uh, you have an emotion. And then you have to filter that thought through expression, whether it's language, whether it's uh, the written word, whether it's creating a piece of art. You use the tools that you have to express this emotion, um, which sometimes are imperfect or imprecise. Uh, and then once you express those things, somebody has to hear that. Somebody has to go through the process of listening or seeing or reading, uh, or feeling if you're trying to express through physical touch in some way, or some, some sort of tactile sensation. 
And then that person has to use their own prior um, knowledge, their own prior experiences, their own history, their own understanding of the world to make sense of whatever they are feeling from you, whatever they are hearing from you, whatever they read from you. So there are multiple layers of interpretation that go into every interaction with another human being. Uh, and every one of them has a filter attached to it. There, there are layers of filters, layers of um, trying to understand each other. And that can be very imprecise. That can be uh, sort of like the telephone game that only works between two people, but you know, going five steps between one person to another. Um, and, and that's how you, you end up with a lot of these misunderstandings between people and how you can have uh, a lack of knowledge of another person's experience. So finding people who are very intentional about the way that they express themselves or the way that they create art, they think very carefully about how to get something internal out uh, and then try to anticipate the audience and how they might interpret what they're saying um, and that way the audience can more clearly understand the initial impulse or the initial thought or emotion. Uh, that takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of training. Uh, that takes a lot of self-reflection. Um, and it takes a lot of uh, understanding of social cues and understanding of other people. So that's a, that, it takes a unique person to be able to communicate uh, in such a way consistently. And that is why, to bring it all together, I'm a big fan of Every Time I Die's third era as a band, their third act in their career. Um, on the first episode, I talked about the first era a bit, uh, their first two releases, The Burial Plot Bidding War, uh, The Last Night in Town full-length LP, their debut. Um, those ranked in my bottom three. Uh, purely because I think that they were not mature yet. Uh, they weren't able to stand on their own two feet yet. They were not confident in their songwriting, not confident in their uh, instrumentation or the vocal delivery. And I talked some about their second era, which uh, I think is where they started to pull away from those initial um, influences. I think that their first era was marked by the metalcore scene of the late 90s and early 2000s. They very clearly were heavily influenced by that kind of thing, being around that kind of thing, being entrenched in that culture. Gutter Phenomenon kicking off their second era of sound, but was clearly influenced by the third wave of emo that was going on at the time that was actually extremely popular, going as far as having Gerard Way from My Chemical Romance on one of their songs, as I said. But it was really, I think, in their third era, the final era, of their career, where they really, really figured out uh, how to make this very intentional effort to communicate what was going on in, you know, internally with them, where they were able to process those hermeneutics or, or those filters, um, as another term, uh, and, and how you get from point A to point B and how there's so many little pit stops along the way where you have to to filter things and, and put things through the right, the right expressions in order to get a, a more pure distillation of point A to point B. And that's why, um, you know, if I'm looking at my rankings right now, and I am, um, all three of their albums in that era are actually in my top five. And to kick us off is... Uh, the second album of that, or four albums, excuse me, there are four albums in that era, and all four are in this uh, top five. And at, starting at number five here uh, is from Parts Unknown from 2014. Uh, it's an album that I think they really found an eclectic sound. I think they found a sound that was still uniquely theirs, um, but was... A bit more expansive. They allowed themselves a little more room to breathe and try new things on this one while also remaining true to the sound that they had developed on their last two albums, uh, The Big Dirty and uh, New Junk Aesthetic, uh, the last two albums of their second era. And so, you know, this one is probably their most punk album, I think. Uh, pure punk, not just metalcore. 
Um, but I think it harkened back to some of their roots with that, that punk ethos, uh, the punk sound. Um, you hear that in, in a lot of these songs, especially at the beginning of the album. Songs like Thirst, for example, which is just a rambunctious, kick-you-in-the-face kind of a punk song. Uh, I think it's really brilliant, and I think that this was one where they also started delving into um, more, let's say, commercially viable sounds that did not feel like a put-on. Um, I think that the times where they were trying to be more commercially viable um, were just that. They were trying. They were making an intentional effort to be more commercial, commercially viable uh, in a way that felt to me a bit false. Um, you know, on the gutter phenomenon, it felt false when they were trying to make that a little bit more pal palatable to the uh, to the the purchasing audience, people who might go out and buy their record at Hot Topic or something. Um, this album, though, was where they really opened up a bit. There there were songs like Decaying with the Boys, Old Light, El Dorado, um, all songs that, you know, you could potentially listen to, you know, not on the radio, but there were certain parts of it that certainly sounded like they would be radio friendly. Um, and that to me was, was really surprising to hear from them when I first listened to this album. And it was one where you could feel that Keith was a bit more comfortable uh, with his singing voice, uh, with his actual clean vocals. Now, mind you, they had already uh, started turning in that direction, and of course Keith had been doing some clean vocals really, really since their their third album, um, Hot Damn. Um, but it was not something that... And let me correct myself here. Uh, Hot Damn being their third release, not their third album. So before anybody yells at me, I, I know that wasn't their third full-length album. Uh, but for the purposes of this... Uh, experiment. It was what I will call their third. Um, but anyway, it was not something that you could tell they were really leaning on too hard until this third era, where you could tell that there was a change in Keith's voice, and you could tell that there was a maturity in Keith's voice um, that didn't really come through the same way on previous albums. I think there was a more confidence uh, in that third era, and it came through on this album uh, more than, than I think in their previous album, X Lives, which we will get to. Uh, X Lives does have one song, I will admit, that, that is entirely clean vocals, the first time they'd ever done that. Um, but, again, I think that this album was the one where he really, really started to open up a bit more with the clean vocals uh, and, and felt like that could carry the song. And maybe that's just my read on it. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But it certainly felt like he was a lot more confident uh, on this one. Now moving on to our next one, number four, uh, we have their latest album, their final album, uh, unless we see some sort of reunion down the line, which is hard to imagine given the animosity that marked their split as a band. Um, we have Radical, Radical from 2021, an album that seems to have been in the works for, for quite some time, given the, the huge gap. Uh, I believe it was a five-year gap between this and Low Teens, which, uh, again, will also come up later. Um, but this one was written over a long period of time, and a lot of the lyrics were written, from what I understand, during or in the immediate wake of 2020, where we saw massive uh, uprisings against police brutality, uh, massive uprisings against the inequality that had been bubbling up, um, obviously since the nation's inception, it's nothing new, but, you know, this, this sort of mass consciousness that has been unfolding over the last 10, 15 years or so. Um, and I think a lot of that came to head and came to a head in 2020. Uh, the, maybe it was the pressure cooker of the, um, COVID outbreaks. Maybe it was the presidential election of 2016 with Donald Trump being elected president. Anyway, it all came to a head in 2020 uh, in a really explosive way, and it gave, uh, gave way to a very explosive album. Uh, Radical uh, is their most political album by far. Uh, it was the first one where they, I think, really said anything explicitly political, though I think there were some 
elements of previous songs and previous albums that maybe were influenced by the band's personal philosophies and personal views on politics, Keith's in particular as the lyricist. But Radical um, is one that speaks to me on a lot of levels. Um, I will just go ahead and come out and say it, that I share a lot of political beliefs with uh, Keith Buckley. We are both very clearly and firmly on the left end of the political ex uh, spectrum, you know, critiques of capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy and and all these things that, you know, people will call me a, a special snowflake for, which I always found funny. But this album, um, being as politically charged as it is, is an extremely angry album. Uh, and it, it does delve into that um, almost cringeworthy level of sincerity that I mentioned earlier. Uh, but I don't think that's a detriment. I think I think that that was a very sincere moment in time. It was an it was a point in time where everybody was very emotional, emotionally charged, politically charged. A lot of people were very angry on both sides of the political aisle across the entire political uh, spectrum. Uh, everybody felt very charged. There was an energy uh, to that time uh, that I think that they captured very well on this one with songs like. Planet Shit being an obvious one. It's certainly a song that was on repeat for me uh, for a while. Um, you know, plans or, or songs like Desperate Pleasures uh, being another one. These are songs that are expressions of pure rage and in some cases embarrassment, shame, um, which I can understand. Certainly things that I felt at the time. Uh, whether explicitly through the lyrics I could relate or just through the music itself. I think this album delved into a real chaos from them at points, um, which has always been an element of their sound, but you really hear the full spectrum of sonic anger. And it makes for a really powerful listen. It does. Um, I, and I think that it's also interesting um, that this is an album that has at least two explicitly sexually charged songs, things that they had not really covered too much. Obviously, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll um, ever present in any sort of uh, rock band. It is a, a libidinal genre. Um, I've used that word m multiple times on this show, but I like it as a word, and also it, it sort of captures what I'm saying is this sort of primal urge that, that fuels a lot of uh, heavy music. Um, but it's, it's an album of very intense um, libidinal motion, emotions and urges. And I think that that sort of personal reflection and that personal expression of things that maybe make you a bit vulnerable were um, something that was very attractive about this album. I will also note that it, it is interesting how confident the band sounded together and cohesive this band sounded together on this album when, if you listen to them afterward and after their split, apparently they had been considering breaking up for quite some time and that tensions had been running high for some time, partially, in, in, according to Keith Buckley, because of their differences in political opinions at, at times and that sort of you know, recording this album and writing the lyrics led to some tensions and, and led to some disagreements that perhaps fueled their split. But in spite of all of that, uh, I thought that this, this was an album that musically um, they really came together on. And, and I think that it was impressively composed. Um, and composed is not a term that is easily applicable to bands in this particular genre. Uh, of this this sort of metal punk crossover kind of genre. Uh, it's normally just something that sort of slams together into you rather than being something that's tight and composed. Uh, so kudos to them for, for that uh, on this album. An album uh, earlier in their career that maybe didn't feel so composed but certainly felt very personal, very, uh, very steeped in self-reflection was my number three album, Hot Damn, um, the only album from their um, earlier days, their first era that made it to my top five. It is actually the oldest album in my top five by a considerable margin. I believe there is nine years uh, between this album 
and the oldest al the other oldest album on this uh, on this top five. Uh, Hot Damn was the end of their second era. It was very clearly still a meta metal core album, uh, but it is one where I believe some of their early fans felt that they were selling out. They were doing more clean vocals. Um, didn't really feel like they wanted to lean on them too much. They were sort of sprinkled in here and there. Um, but they certainly decided to go, go for a more riff-oriented approach uh, instead of writing six or seven riffs all in one song and slamming them, slamming them together. They wrote riffs that would sort of stand the test of time. You know, you think of songs like Floater. Uh, you think of songs like Ebola-rama. You think of songs like I've Been Gone a Long Time. These are songs with clearly identifiable riffs that carry the entire song, uh, motifs that carry the entire song. They were actually writing songs, is what I'm getting at here, um, and very strong ones at that. You know, chaotic, immature at times, but still very strong songs nonetheless. Um, I would like to bring up um, She's My Rushmore uh, here. Uh, as a personal favorite of mine, I, I was always impressed with the sort of melancholy vulnerability that they were able to tap into on their early albums. Um, you can hear it very well on their first era. If you pay attention, if you look for it, you'll find it. Uh, it will stick out. Those moments of very quiet, vulnerable, emotional, clean vocal uh, songs uh, or at least moments in those songs that act as great contrasts for the chaos. Because that's important that I, I think that they started to figure out more and more as their career went on that the more chaotic your sound is all the way through, the less meaningful it is. You actually have to let things breathe in order for them to actually mean anything. Uh, so I think that this album was one where they, they really started tapping into that. And I think that this album uh, was one of their most literary albums. Uh, that's another appeal to me. This, I believe, was written while Keith was still in college getting his degree in English. I'm not sure if that's, I'm not sure if that's accurate, but if I remember correctly, that's the case. And uh, it really shows through in the lyrics, a lot of Shakespearean references, a lot of references to, um, you know, in this, in She's My Rushmore, it's a direct reference to a Wes Anderson film, uh, which is not something you would expect from a metal band, but they were willing to pull from a diverse well of influences. And it really, really strengthens it, I think, and it makes them stand out. And this album was the one that really made them stand out as something special, as something different. And it gave us iconic songs that would be in their set list for the rest of their career. Again, like Ebola-rama or Floater. Uh, Floater, of course, having the, the lyric, Drag the Lake, You'll Find It Full of Love, which actually gave me the title for this podcast, Dragging the Lake. So shout out to them, shout out to that song uh, for giving us this podcast. So moving on to number two. This one surprised me. I was really not expecting uh, this to be as high on my, my list, uh, and that's X Lives, 2012. Uh, it's an album that went under my radar for a minute. Uh, I wasn't thinking about Every Time I Die very much at the time. I was mostly into hip-hop at that point. Um, but I remember Underwater Bimbos from Outer Space was released as a single, and I saw it pop up on social media and thought, oh, Every Time I Die, I haven't listened to them in a long time. Maybe I'll... Maybe I'll give this one a try. And it absolutely blew the doors off. It is a, an intense, intense banger of a song um, that really kicks off the album strongly. And I think that it's one that, again, would, would stand the test of time. It's been 10 years, and, and I know that when I saw them live, they, they definitely had to play this one. Definitely got a good mosh pit going to end this one. Uh, it is an album that I found to be intensely heavy uh, all the way through. I was very surprised upon listening to it again, uh, just how heavy it was. And I think it's because they had fully internalized at this point something that they already had done, but I think that they really mastered it in this third era, and this was the beginning of their third era, um, where they, they really mastered what I mentioned on... Uh, hot damn, where they were able to rein it in, let it breathe, give the audience a break, give them something melodic, something that they can catch a hook to, and then hit them with the heavy sounds again. 
uh, and it, it really made for a jarring experience in the best possible way on this one. Uh, some other high points from this album, Drag King, perfect example of how they can use the melodic and the heavy, because uh, this is an intensely heavy song and it ends on a, one of their more melodic, more catchy notes. Uh, they allowed each of those parts to play off of each other in, in a way that, you know, that dynamic uh, is really powerful and it's one that, you know, you hear throughout all music, all genres, something that, you know, you look in the Pixies did, that uh, Nirvana did, uh, it was something that all the great songwriters realized that you could do um, with especially rock music. And this was one of their better composed albums for that reason, because I think songs like that, Indian Giver, Partying is Such Sweet Sorrow, they were able to find a way to experiment with their sounds a bit in a way that contrasted and supplemented each other, rather than try to blow your ears off every single time. Although blowing your ears off every single time um, can be fun when it's a song like Underwater Bimbos from Outer Space, which again, absolutely raise the hair on your head. Uh, moving on to the final one, my number one, my top ranked album. Uh, and this should come as no surprise if you know what I'm into, if you know that I'm all about the self-reflection, you know that I'm all about laying bare uh, the depths of emotion that go into making art. It's 2016's Low Teens. Now this is an album that took me a while to really get into. And the reason it took me a while to get into one was, again, like, like with X-Lives, I wasn't really thinking about every time I dial that much at the time. I'm not sure why, what, you know, maybe I was just focusing more on hip-hop again. Um, but I didn't really think to listen to it when it first came out until I heard Map Change, uh, which is probably to this day my favorite every time I die song. Uh, I think it's, it's one of their most touching. I think it's one of their most... Um, relatable songs. I know that I mentioned earlier that finding a universal appeal is finding no appeal at all because you end up, you know, not really appealing to anyone. If it's so broadly applicable, uh, then that means it's not very personally applicable for the most part. But this one was one where they were speaking directly to people who had lost something in their community. They lived in what they felt was a bit of a decaying world. They lived in one where they felt that opportunities had been lost and opportunities would not be afforded to them the way that they would be to prior generations. And that is something that does have a very specific appeal to people of my generation. Now, they're all, from what I understand, uh, late Gen Xers, um, but I think that they speak to that sense of looking out onto the horizon and not seeing the sun uh, the way that perhaps other people have or other people do when they're in different circumstances or when they were born in different eras. It's a difficult thing to process. It's something I struggle with a lot, something I struggle with alongside um, millions of people uh, in my age group. You see decaying economies, you see the decaying environment, you see decaying political institutions. Uh, it's happening all over the world, especially in the quote-unquote West. It's not easy. It's not easy, but a song like this can be anthemic for people who are feeling that. And so I thank them for giving me that. I think that this is definitely their most emotionally charged album. It was written during a time of great emotional strife for Keith Buckley. Uh, he had become a parent at this time. He had also been in a situation where he might have lost his wife and child uh, during the childbirth process. And as a married man um, who has contemplated becoming a father, uh, I, I, it really struck me as something of a warning, in a sense, uh, of, of what sort of emotional peril uh, you can be in whenever you love someone as unconditionally and as intensely uh, as you can love uh, your partner, as I do. Um, or as you could love your child, or what could become your child, you know? Um, it, it was, it's a really harrowing album, in a way. And, you know, songs like Petal, which I, I believe holds up as one of their, their finest songs, really delves into this, where he says, If I have to walk alone, I'm giving up. I can't stay knowing love is not enough. And that's something that 
I think anybody uh, in a relationship like that can understand. It's, uh, it's, again, it's very harrowing. It's also telling that one of the other high points on this album, Fear and Trembling, um, takes its name from Fear and Trembling, uh, a treatise by Soren Kierkegaard, which is about the biblical story of Abraham and the binding of Isaac. It is a story in the Bible, for those who don't know, about God testing the faith of Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son, Isaac, uh, in the name of God. And it is, again, harrowing. I'm using that term a lot, uh, but it's relevant. And the idea that you would sacrifice, willingly or not, your child, someone that you love dearly, um, in the name of God or in the name of something greater than yourself, is one that I think should come with a great deal of fear and trembling. Uh, I guess some true believers probably wouldn't feel that way, but I know I certainly would. And the fact that in that story, the message is that one must be willing to test themselves to their absolute limit uh, to prove their faith or to challenge their faith carries through on this album. Uh, I believe that Keith's faith in himself, in the world, in love itself, was tested in about the harshest way it could be, and he came out of it uh, sort of triumphant on this album. The end of the song, Pedal, is him saying, untimely ripped into this world, I was born again as a girl. And what a way to go out. What a way to go out uh, with that, that feeling that you have been born again through the birth of, of someone else, through coming out the other side and realizing that you had been tested and you made it. And now you have this love that has been tested. You have this love that has been proven, uh, that has real blood in it. That's, uh, that's heavy stuff. That's very heavy stuff for a very heavy album uh, <laughs> on this heavy metal podcast. So that's my rankings. Um, those are my top five. Got a little personal there. Got a little emotional there at the end. I'm certainly feeling in a more contemplative move now that I have gone through this and really thought more about this album, uh, let it resonate with me more. I won't go too much into the rest of the songs because I think that the most important part of that album is how deeply personal it is and how, frankly, sort of painful it can be to listen to it at times because it does hit someone like myself uh, really, really close to the heart. So hopefully you learned something. Hopefully you got some recommendations. Hopefully you can reflect more on these albums if you've already listened to them. Uh, maybe check out ones that you haven't. But either way, uh, we'll be signing off for the week. This has been Jake Dragging the Lake, and I hope to see you all on the other side of my vacation. And uh, feel free, again, hit me up on Twitter at Lake Dragging. Feel free to email me, lakedragging at gmail.com. I'd love to discuss things more, whether you want to talk every time I die, whether you want to talk uh, any band, if you want to give me recommendations for my 90s project, let me know. And uh, hopefully we'll have some really good guests coming up in the next three episodes. That's my plan, is to have three, three guest episodes in a row before I start diving into this project with uh, the 90s and, and the early 2000s. So be on the lookout, and thank you for listening. <laughs>